to students, but just seeing people get excited. <laughs> like I like seeing the future, the next generation, people who still want to get out there and they're not getting paid for it. You know, when you get out there in a big group of kids or a small group of kids and, you know, you can teach them something and then they get so excited and they get in the moment and you realize, okay, great. This is something that you can come back to your whole life. And then, you know, maybe one out of 10 will be inspired and keep going with it. But you know, you're developing these connections. And to me, that's what keeps me going. It's just trying to spark that path in other people. And Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pelicanus. Pelicanus is a nonprofit organization focused on sharing the movement that is and has been happening in the conservation field. Now, this is Conservation Conversations, our long-form documentary-style show that highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field and to show that people have, and still are, making monumental differences in our world with intentional change. Head over to pelicanus.org to find all of our episodes and more. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. In this episode, we talked to Corey Merrill and Sarah Godfrey about the Center for Natural Lands Management, or CNLM, preserves and management in Southern California. CNLM is a nonprofit organization that is focused on conserving native species, their habitat and functioning ecosystems in perpetuity, promoting the conservation values of such lands through education, promoting and facilitating uses of lands by the public that preserve the conservation values, and much, much more. Check out their conservation work at cnlm.org. Corey Merrill is a preserve manager for CNLM in Southern California, which focuses on habitat conservation of many different habitat types, endangered or special status species, and public outreach. Sarah Godfrey is now a private contractor in Southern California with Map the Point, which specializes in database organization and customized GIS solutions, integrated pest management and habitat restoration, and project management. Check out her work at mapthepoint.com. Now please enjoy our conversation with Corey and Sarah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you guys mind introducing yourselves and uh, tell us what your title is and who you work for? Go ahead, uh, Sarah, please. Hi, my name is Sarah Godfrey. I'm a preserve manager for the Center for Natural Lands Management. I work in the San Diego preserves and a little bit in Orange County and uh, some of the other places that CNLM works, which is throughout California and a little bit in Washington State. Yeah, my name is Corey Merrill. I am a preserve manager for the Center for Natural Lands Management, um, and I work in uh, Orange County predominantly. I guess we'll start big picture. When you guys say you are preserve managers, um, so some of our audience may or may not have any idea what conservation is and you know what that means. Do you guys mind kind of saying what it, what is a preserve and what does preserve management mean? You can go ahead, Sarah, since Corey stepped out. Oh, there she is. All right. So the Center for Natural Lands Management was started in 1990 down here in SoCal. And the purpose of creating these preserves was primarily for mitigation of development. Southern California started a rapid development boom that's pretty much never ceased. And the founder of this organization who turned it into a nonprofit, Sherry Teresa, started working with 
government agencies as habitat conservation plans and different types of environmental laws are put into place so that lands can be set aside for species that were either identified as you know endangered, threatened, sensitive, or that they would become that. And so you know, protecting the species and their habitats is the mission of the Center for Natural Lands Management. So we have what are called habitat conservation areas that we've worked with the um, different types of government agencies to design. And they're little chunks of land, everything from little portions of an acre to multi-thousands of acres. And um, we as preserve managers are responsible for protecting those species and their habitats and you know, mitigating the threats, which are humans, you know, edge effects, um, invasive plants, invasive animals, and uh, the other things that happen that are unpredictable um, on land. Yeah, of like what is a preserve and preserve management um, for non conservation people usually say, you know, a preserve manager is, is essentially a, a land manager, um, but it's not only the land, it's the species that we're, we're managing and steward, stewards of. Um, and, you know, preserve is really at the heart of it, you know, conserved open space. Um, and so in Southern California, I can imagine that your preserves are highly urbanized, because I can imagine a preserve in Montana could just be like this wide open space for miles and miles and miles, and a preserve in Southern California could be like right next to a golf course kind of thing. Well, I would say some of our preserves are within a golf course. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. so, not even in just adjacent to, but within, um, or, you know, as Sarah mentioned, edge effect, and we have a lot of that in Southern California of just the amount of the perimeter that our habitat or our preserves but up against um, the urban interface is quite large versus uh, wide open preserves that we have in you know central california and northern california yeah and i guess to put it into some kind of context what um how, how do you guys know off the top of your head how many acres you manage <laughs> so for example i have uh, one of the larger areas that I manage, it's called the Rancho La Costa Habitat Conservation Area, and it's a network of conserved lands comprising of 1,700 acres, but it also has 49 miles of urban edge. Um, most of it is surrounded and divided by streets, houses, developments, um, and it's put together in the idea of, you know, preserving important areas of, for wildlife to move, um, for corridors, and looking at you know, how movement might happen from the coast to the interior lands um, for species, including deer and cactus wren and gnat catchers and animals that can move short distances and long distances and, and plants. And um, so that's a, that's a pretty interesting concept to have a, a large preserve, but have it so divided. The, the largest contiguous parcel in that is about 400 acres. Um, okay, so you guys mentioned that like land management is really just species management um, in a way, because um, you're trying to save these uh, and protect these preserves for the species and like you said, for their movement. Um, what, it's kind of always a weird thing to say, but what specific species do you, uh, are you protecting? Are there covered species? Are there endangered species? Uh, are they just kind of locally rare? 
So in Orange County, we have um, four preserves in my portfolio. And um, just go back to your earlier question that, you know, my preserves or land um, ranges from, you know, a six acre parcel to the largest is going to be 120 acres um, with a lot of edge. So that's not even really continuous habitat. Um, in all four of those, we manage and protect for the California gnat catcher, which then serves as sort of our umbrella species in, here in Southern California that, you know, because of the federal protections that the gnat catcher has um, being listed as federally threatened, it allows us to protect habitat for them from development specifically uh, in Southern California and, and along the coast. So that's the main one. And through that, you know, other, a host of other species are protected as well. Um, and then another big profile species that I have in Orange County is the Pacific pocket mouse located at Dana Point. And that's listed as um, federally endangered because it's uh, one of three extant populations uh, in the world. Would you mind kind of giving a a quick summary of what the the species kind of what they are, where they live, um, what you know about them? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can try. Sarah, please chime in. Um, Sarah definitely has uh, more history with the species than I do. Um, so the Pacific pocket mouse um, is a subspecies of um, pocket mouse. Um, so they, you know, historically have been recorded from LA County down to Tijuana in the coastal zone. So, um, you know, the beach to four kilometers um, inland uh, at 10 uh, separate locations that they have been um, recorded at. And then they were thought to be extinct were we found in Dana Point in 1993, which you know led to other surveys in this particular habitat of the coastal coastal zones and sandy soils. And since then, um, two other populations have been uh, rediscovered, both of which are in um, the marine base Camp Pendleton. And so they're a very coastal species, and the biggest issue that they've faced is the coastal development that you mentioned from Baja all the way to as, long, as far as you can go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Coastal development, agriculture, um, and, you know, what we're experiencing a lot in, in these urban areas of um, habit, habitat fragmentation, too. So when you, and again, Sarah, you can jump in at any point, um, when you say managing for the species, what does that mean? Like, do you have to do monitoring? Do you do reintroductions? Do you tag and release? What, is that, what does that mean? Yeah, so for Pacific Pocket Mouse, we do annual monitoring um, using a non-invasive um, protocol we call track tube monitoring. And it's where, um, you know, small mammals in general, but in this case, Pacific Pocket Mice, we put attractants into a PVC pipe or a tube that and then it will have um, ink cards and track paper. So when the mice go in to get the food or are attracted to the food, they walk over the ink and then leave their footprints on the track paper. And we go in and we can pick up the track paper and which species have been there based on their footprints. Um, and then so we can track 
um, the area of use or area of occupancy of the Pacific pocket mouse in the areas that we're monitoring. So they, they walk over the ink, they leave their footprints on a, like a little piece of paper and mm -hmm. you kind of, you have like a cheat sheet with you and what a Pacific pocket mouse foot looks like, footprint looks like compared to a different kind of mouse? Yeah, exactly. It's looking at a lot of little dots and trying to decipher them. And, you know, once you get that search image, it can become fairly easy, but it takes a while to do that. And so um, USGS um, was working on this at Camp Pendleton, and they're the ones who developed the protocol for PPM or Pacific Pocket Mouse. So what is it that you do for management for it? Just kind of keeping people out? Yeah, we're just trying to do what we can when we can, to be honest. Um, it, you know, because we have other species there, we do have the California gnat catcher who does like sort of a more dense um, cover and, you know, does tend to do better in that mature CSS or coastal sage scrub. Um, so they're kind of, their needs are at odds. And so we do things kind of in chunks. So we're not making too much of a, you know, a, a shift in habitat type. Yeah, I guess that's part of the complexity of uh, preserve management is if you have multiple species that you're managing for, they don't always have the exact same requirements in terms of what plants are there, what it looks like, north facing, south facing, any, any of those things that, you know, could change the, the habitat. So it, is it just kind of a, a site by site basis? Uh, you just kind of find your priorities and, and just kind of manage each, each site adaptively? I, I think so. And Sarah, maybe you can talk on this more because you have sort of a more diverse portfolio. Yeah, Dana Point is definitely one of the most interesting places that somebody could possibly work a little 30 acre postage stamp of complete diversity, complexity, endangered species. Um, it's just, it's pretty fascinating to just look at these dynamics and you say prioritize and as the time went on and it became a preserved area, it was kind of sheltered, cut off, you know, there wasn't a change, there wasn't a correlation in any increase in the population. It wasn't necessarily helping the pocket mouse. I mean, the not catcher population exploded. There's tons of them for, you know, the area that mm -hmm. it serves, but the Pacific pocket mouse, you know, that likes open sandy soils so that it can create its burrows, it can forage for these annual plants and forage for food. You know, it lost its habitat in this, you know, age growth of these plants and they weren't being managed. And so then, you know, Corey working with different agencies and trying to find funding and, you know, trying to match up, you know, this kind of idea of what does the ideal habitat look like with, the funding that's available and performing the work. I mean, I think, I don't know how much you're able to divulge, but it's really interesting that, you know, doing habitat management, closing off the preserve due to COVID and these other factors, and then a huge boom in the pocket mouse population as observed and captured. I mean, again, with lots of variables, it's not necessarily correlated. It's one of the interesting things about science. <laughs> You know, we're only as good as pocket mice want us to be and uh, what they yeah. want to show us. But it's fascinating. I mean, it's really one of the most interesting places and one of the most interesting species. And, you know, people don't really know, like, oh, it's land. Like, why do you have to manage land? Can't you just leave it alone? I mean, it's kind of this common 
misconception everywhere and among lots of different conservancies and and when you're doing a bid on a piece of land and oh I just want to donate my land to this land trust why won't they take it well gosh it costs a lot of money to maintain land especially when you're talking about specific species and habitats and as we mentioned before you know thinking about threats and you know everything from from fire and invasive plants to what are the specific needs of the species how can we mimic the disturbance without creating too much and you know putting another species at risk it's it's interesting sarah and i think you hit on something really important um you know this idea of management and maintenance of open spaces or preserves costs money and this idea um i think at you know some point in the history of conservation they were just like oh we'll just set land aside and it will be fine we restored it we paid money or we pres preserved it and it's good to go and then you come back 10 years later or maybe even five and it's trash right like somebody was living there there was a fire and invasive weeds came in um and you know i think that's something that the center really brought to conservation in Southern California, this idea of like, you know, you need to pay for per perpetual management and maintenance and that we're not gonna do it for free. Like, you know, you need good quality work and it takes science and, and follow through. And um, yeah, we definitely, you know, do that constantly on our, our property. Yeah. and. I'm from my experience, I think you guys are some of the best at it because you build into your budgets, uh, you know, sometimes at least uh, research projects, uh, you know, actual adaptive management strategies rather than just like, we'll do the bare minimum and just we'll, whatever, we'll take it so we can have money. <laughs> but before we kind of get away from it, uh, I wanted to talk to mm -hmm. or ask Sarah about your um, preserves and kind of what species are you focused on? Are they the same species? Are they a little bit different? We don't have any pocket mice and uh, definitely yeah. not a suitable release place. But yeah, so what makes San Diego really interesting is that, like you said, they have a really, they spent a long time with these governing documents for the county and then, you know, creating the habitat conservation plan, the multiple species conservation plan progress. And, um, and then Carlsbad, which is primarily Center for Naturalized Management has a lot of land in Carlsbad. We manage about 70% of the land there. Um, and own just about half of the open space um, that has been set aside through their HMP, the Habitat Management Planning Process. And uh, so, so really these guiding documents, you know, they've identified species and then when CNLM, as you mentioned, they do a PAR property analysis and, you know, look at the land, see what's out there, and then whatever species um, coincide with these zones of uh, interest set aside. So yeah, the, the coastal gnat catcher, that's definitely the primary one um, we monitor. We also have least bells vireo, um, western pond turtle. Um, we have uh, quite a few endangered plants that we monitor, the San Diego thornmint, threadleaf rhodia. Um, there's, there's actually quite a lot of diversity on the San Diego preserves, but they're primarily set aside in Carlsbad, especially for the conservation of a gnat catcher. So as we talked about with the complexity of management and all of the difficulties you could find with invasive species or uh, you know, 
bad attitudes by neighbors or or whatever it is you don't do that unless you love it unless you have some sort of passion for it and as you kind of mentioned uh core you started in you know with training in botany and entomology and then now you're just kind of a psychologist <laughs> in a certain way um so i guess we'll start with you corey if you don't mind um how did you get into this field well i think like uh, probably a lot of people in our field are really like growing up um, in the outdoors, hiking, uh, just being constantly outside. And um, it wasn't until college when I took a field conservation course um, that I, I realized you can do it for a career and like, people would pay you um, to be outside looking at nature. Um, you know, coming, you know, I think from a growing up in a small town is sort of limited on what options you could have as a career. Um, so college was a great like eye opener of, um, oh my gosh, I can get paid to hike. This is amazing. Or at the time I was working at a fish hatchery um, and I was like, I'm getting paid to fish. This couldn't be better. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Wyoming. Pretty so different. A lot of it's, yeah, pretty different um, in an, like an ag area. So, you know, that's, that's where I come from. And so that probably helped it, you know, you know um, generate my path as well of just, you know, growing up on a ranch and working outside constantly um, and probably noticing things, you know, weeds and stuff like that, that other people probably wouldn't growing up um, as a kid. Um, I don't know too many like 14 year olds that were into agronomy and, you know, grasses. So um, I was that cool person for sure. You're the um, president of your local 4-H club. <laughs> I wasn't in 4-H. I was in uh, the Future Farmers of America. Okay. 4-H um, was too pedestrian. <laughs> no, sorry, 4-H, if you're listening. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's it. I just really enjoy um, you know being outdoors and and hiking around and observing things. It turns out I'm pretty good at it, I think. Um, and that always helps, right? If you're good at your job, <laughs> it makes it easier to go to. Now, what about you, Sarah? Where did you grow up, and uh, what was it that kind of locked you in? Yeah, I, kind of, I definitely have a different story. I grew up in urban New Jersey, and um, you know, our nature was, you know, it was soccer fields, and there was a local river. We would go skating on in the winter. Um, but my dad's family is from northern Maine, and so every summer we would go up to northern Maine and spend a few weeks, you know, on this lake at my, you know, family property that they had bought in 1895. And my grandfather, he was really into very interested in studying lake health. He was very involved in, you know, lake water quality monitoring and counting the loons and how many eels and how, you know, studying the water level. <laughs> he was just very involved and, you know, there's a bunch of erosion and there's runoff into the lake and watching these dynamics. And I, I mean, that place, you know, that, I think that is what inspired me. And so as I kind of grew into being a teenager, I just, you know, would work doing backpacking, you know, all over Maine and New Hampshire and just be outside, like you said, all the time and just develop a passion 
and sustenance in the outdoors and a connection to it. And the more time you spend in it, the more you want to be a part of it and you can relate to it. And so um, I came to California to go to school at UC Santa Cruz and just, you know, my passion just exploded. I just wanted to take field conservation classes and worked in, to have a huge uh, agricultural center where it's agroecology and you study the interactions of the environment, and agriculture, and you're really a big leader in sustainability and integrated pest management. And so introduced new concepts to me and I did a lot of work in natural resources management. Um, I worked for the state parks and did prescribed burning and you know, managed nursery and did all kinds of different field opportunities and um, worked at the university in different field capacities and just, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be outside and I just needed to study these dynamics that were occurring all around me. And um, like I said, just a passion for it. And, you know, as you get into things like restoration, wow, what's more instant gratification than planting something, watching it grow, watching it change over time, watching species move in. Again, just, it's so challenging, but it's so dynamic and it's constant problem solving. You don't get bored because you're always thinking about something or what's next. And then, you know, things, things happen and it's, it's exciting as it is challenging. So it's definitely, I think, you know, you're born with it and it's for a specific personality, but it also can grow on you, I think. And I, what you guys both kind of mentioned the same, same thing where it was your time outside uh, in your formative years, I guess, uh, that you, that's kind of where you, discovered your you know even if you didn't know it at the time it's kind of where you kind of laid the groundwork for what you're doing and the positive feedback loop is now you guys are managing preserves that people are then doing that exact thing and taking their kids out and saying hey let's go for a hike today and like hey what's that bird i look there's a snake whatever and so the whole thing that you're now in a little bit of indirect way you're now giving back and hoping that the next community or the next generation come up with the same kind of ethic it's pretty cool um, and I guess along the same lines, um, what keeps you going? What gives you hope to, to keep doing this? You know, because if you don't have uh, some level of optimism, or as we like to say, possibilism, you wouldn't keep doing this. Yeah, so I think, I think one of the things that gives me hope is, you know, regional collaboration, because people in our community working together and having conversations, or I think that's one of the, one of the most important things is just, you know, working together, Realizing it's not a competition between consultants and you know, everybody, everybody's here on the land. And, and I personally really like to engage with say, community groups and volunteer groups and students from all ages, whether it's scouts or you know, university students, but just seeing people get excited. <laughs> like I like seeing the future, the next generation, people who still want to get out there and they're not getting paid for it. You know, when you get out there, with a big group of kids or a small group of kids and you know you can teach them something and then they get so excited and they get in the moment and you realize okay great this is something that you can come back to your whole life and then you know maybe one out of ten will be inspired and keep going with it but you know, you're developing these connections and to me that's what keeps me going it's just trying to spark that passion in other people and you know and then seeing also the benefits of the work that you do and you have things you, know, you fight really hard and you work really hard like Corey did at Data Point and then you get a really good year you know of the species you're working for and you think wow that's that's amazing and I hope that you can sit in those kinds of victories and see that and 
Um, it doesn't happen all the time. Or like for us in San Diego, you know, we had a really good San Diego tournament year and we did this big out seating and, you know, it's like, wow, we had the biggest population we've ever recorded in the 15 year history of, that's pretty amazing. Okay, cool, we're gonna keep going. So small victories, small victories and relish them for as long as you can and then try to move on and find another one. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's the, you know, positive thing about the complexities is that it does offer multiple opportunities for these sort of positive feedback, right? Of like things that you can count as a win, a good thorn mint year or a good Pacific pocket mouse year, um, finding a rare plant that you haven't seen in years or, you know, things like that. It's, um, for me, it's the mentality of like, you know, enjoying the small things it's the little things that really give you joy and you know we have these big events that are um, just fantastic that's all the better but you those don't happen all that often so you have to look for the, the small joys of maybe it's a native pollinator maybe it's you know uh, not having a weed or something or uh, a visitor that makes your day all right so final question uh this sometimes can be the most difficult one uh mm -hmm. What is your favorite animal? <laughs> wow, Austin. What is that? We're playing the species game or species favoritism? Corey, you go first. I have to think. Oh, um, well, I have a favorite plant. Hmm. Um, yeah, favorite species. How about that? Favorite species. Now okay. Um, animals here. You know, I'm really fond of um, Coreopsis gigantea from the Channel Islands. It's just so ugly. It's cute. Like a Dr. Um, Seuss plant. Yeah, for sure. All right, Sarah, have you had enough time to think about it? You know, I, I don't have a favorite plant or animal. I just, um, I don't know, it's kind of a weird cop-out, I guess, because everything is kind of i don't know when things are alive and awake and abundant um yeah i cross the across the uh, coasts and i have my favorite species that i have on each coast and things that mean different things and there's animals that symbolize me and i get excited when i see a frog in my creeks in san diego and they're not totally overrun with crayfish or poisoned by you know, all the urban runoff. I mean, it's just any little spark of life that that really can persist is uh, is inspiring. And I really like the coast horn lizard. I think that's a really neat species that I have yet to see on my preserves and I would like to see that. I wouldn't call it my favorite, but. Well, from what I can tell, I think your favorite species is the, is the dog. <laughs> <laughs> How many dogs have you guys saved? And don't you like have a, an organization? Is it in Peru or you like save dogs? Yeah, right? so we also have a 501c3 um, Global United Foundation. And yeah, we primarily work with Puerto Rico and we've been oh. helping to um, coordinate, you know, animals. So spay, neuter, healthcare, rescue, um, bringing the animals from Puerto Rico to the mainland and getting them adopted. and. Uh, we were going to work with Tufts and set up a whole veterinary clinic out there for vet tech students and, um, you know, and their veterinarians to go and train people in. And then, and that was two days before COVID shut everything down that we're supposed to go. So 
it didn't happen, but you know, still, still working hard. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's funny because, you know, we don't allow dogs in our preserves in a lot of areas and it's such conflicts of wildlife. But yeah, my life revolves a lot around dogs. All right. Well, uh, where can we find more about your guys's uh, lands that you manage and uh, or about Center for Natural Lands Management? So you can go to www.cnlm.org. Center for Natural Lands Management has a website and on the website you can navigate to each of the preserves and and they're pretty beautiful actually. Um, our webmaster, webmistress, Romina keeps it up to date and you know gets pictures of the preserves and it's they're each identified as public access or no public access and um, the public access lands have trail maps and more information and you can find our contact information on there. Corey's done some cool videos and there's some you know interesting there's some interesting resources on the website that you can learn more about the species, about the habitats, the places we work, what we do. Um, like I said we're all throughout California and in Washington State and there's all kinds of whole diversity of projects that CNLM works on. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate you, you doing this and I think this was awesome. And yeah, thank you again. We'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Austin. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I want to say thank you to Corey and Sarah for taking the time to talk with us. Please take the time to check out their organizations and their preserves. Host and producer for this episode are Austin Parker. Music was provided by Picture Book Studios. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our page if you haven't already. And thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.